to verse 20. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. Grant that as we look at it, each of us would be conscious that it is you speaking to us, that you would speak to our hearts and our minds, and that our lives would be changed even as we hear what you have to say. In your name we ask it. Amen. Okay, here we have John being taken to prison. That's John the Baptist is taken to prison. This is Mark's gospel. It's very quick, very um, action-orientated. Probably a year between the baptism of John and baptism of Jesus and John's imprisonment. That's why when you're trying to understand the Bible, by the way, don't think of it like we would a kind of Western biography because between verse 12 and verse 14, there's a year probably. Just, but no indication that that is uh, the case. Uh, we know that from the other Gospels and from the timings involved. Jesus began uh, perhaps his ministry in Galilee, or was very involved in Galilee because of the trouble that was in Jerusalem. Uh, Galilee was not, as some people imagine, a quiet rural backwater. It was a crossroads. It was the home of a thoroughly cosmopolitan population Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, Syrian, Jew, Palestinian, Roman, and Parthian, or uh, Persian. It was a place of conflict, of business, of racial tensions, politics, uh, and so on. And into that situation came Jesus proclaiming the good news of God, as verse 14 tells us. Now, what I want to do this morning is to look at what that good news is. And then uh, I want to look a little bit at uh, how we proclaim it, what's involved in that, and how we respond to it as well. So we ask, first of all, simply, what is the good news that comes from God? The word that's used here for good news also carries this idea of just joyful stuff. This is, this is stuff that makes you happy, stuff that makes you sing, stuff that you would come out of the building and... and you would, there's a, a famous Scottish minister in the 19th century uh, called Rabbi Duncan, not Rabbi Burns, he was called Rabbi Duncan, and he, uh, when he realized he was a Christian, and he just, he was, a, he was a Christian, he knew he was, but it just, in one service particularly, it just struck him, and he came out of church in Aberdeen, and he, he, he wrote, I danced on the Brig of Dee for delight. Now, 19th century Scottish Presbyterian ministers did not dance, neither do 21st century, uh, but uh, he was just, he couldn't, he was just, filled with just that, that absolute joy. And for a, uh, a Scottish Presbyterian minister to be so filled with joy that they dance, that really is raising the dead. It's just incredible. And that's the idea in terms of the good news. It, it fills you with joy. Now, what, what is that good news? The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is more, more literally is fulfilled. This is a 
a moment of great time. There are times that are hugely significant in our lives and times that are hugely significant in our culture. You know, the, the kind of, if you're slightly older than me, then uh, people will always say, where were you when JFK was shot? You remember that. You know, well, that was a significant event in the history of the world. Uh, there are significant events that occur within our lives and within the life of the culture. And here is Jesus coming and he's saying, this is such a time. This is just a great time. This is really, really... Time, when you think about it, I mean, I don't want to digress too much on this, but time is just so important. We live in a culture which values money, but you just don't realize uh, the time and just how important it is. If you take all the time um, for significant events in your life, they might not add up to a lot, but they are of great importance. And so... Jesus comes and says, the time has come. And the Greeks used a word for time called kairos, which we can't translate. We don't have a word for it in English that really fits. And that carried this idea of it's a time filled with great significance. It's a time of of great opportunity. Galatians 4.4, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. So Jesus is going to people and he's saying, look, this is a really significant and a really important time. It's a crucial time in, in history. It's a crucial time in your life. I think, personally, that we are at a Kairos time in the life of the church in Scotland, And I think for many people, we are at Kairos times in terms of our own lives, where we're at, what we're doing. You know, that kind of time when you realize, wait a minute, life is not just one plodding on thing after another. Eventually we get old and that's it. You realize, wait a minute, this this is a time. Like like Esther, you think, I've come for a time such as this. And Jesus here, well, we'll come back to that in a moment, but Jesus here talks about this, his kingdom. Now, he assumes when he's talking about the kingdom that the Jews know what it means. In the Old Testament, we were singing about that in Psalm 80, uh, God is described as the king of Israel and the king of the whole world. And yet, that is not yet seen. Israel disobeys. The rest of the world doesn't know. First Samuel 12, verse 12, Even though the Lord your God was your king, There's a sense of a coming rule as well. In Isaiah 24, verse 23, the moon will be abashed, the sun ashamed, for the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders gloriously. Now, when Jesus is talking about the kingdom coming, the difficulty that the Jewish people had, and particularly the religious leaders, was that they thought of the kingdom as being uh, geographical, spatial, coming here. But when Jesus speaks about the kingdom, he's talking about God's rule, God's complete salvation. He's talking about the church. He's talking about the redeemed universe. And you find yourself, we find ourselves living in a world where sometimes there can be two kingdoms, where I, as a Christian, belong to the kingdom of God. I also happen to belong to the kingdom of Alex Salmond or the kingdom of Gordon Brown, or Queen Elizabeth, or whatever. And you're, you're in those 
two kingdoms. And sometimes that can create enormous conflict. But when Jesus speaks about it, he's just talking about the rule that God has in our lives. And there's a lot of writing and argument and discussion about what Jesus meant by the kingdom. And I'm not going to go into it all. But let's, if you've got a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 17 and verse 20. I want to read this. Luke 17 and verse 20. Once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, Here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. In other words, what was happening was these Pharisees, they were coming and they were saying, Look, when's the kingdom coming? And they would argue. They would discuss. They would say, Well, Rabbi so-and-so says this has got to happen and that's got to happen and that's got to happen. And Jesus comes and says, No, that's not how it happens The kingdom of God comes within you. It's quite interesting that if you write a book in Christian terms on Jesus returning or and and you want to talk about how this is going to happen in Israel and Russia's going to do this and China's going to do this and you take all the little bits and you look for all the little signs. People are fascinated with that. But that is not really what's meant by the coming of the kingdom. We pray that God's kingdom would come. And sometimes that is not, and often in fact, that is not what people expect. Here, it involves a suffering Messiah. They did not expect that. Here, it's silent. It's almost imperceptible. In fact, Jesus even said, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you are given sight from above, unless you are reborn or born again from above. The kingdom of God is Jesus baptizing us through the Holy Spirit. Jesus bringing us into his kingdom where we truly can bow the knee and acknowledge Jesus is Lord and worship him. And so the good news is that the kingdom of God has come. The good news is that God is willing to forgive and to receive. The good news is truth and hope and peace and promise and salvation. It is the news that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. In other words, the good news is Jesus Christ. It's quite bizarre how sometimes you can go to church and, you know, Jesus could have been completely left out of the equation. It's quite bizarre how you get religious people who do all the religious things, who pray and who even read the Bible and who even have all the doctrine and who worship. And yet somehow Jesus still gets left out of the equation. I remember a long time ago having a most amazing conversation with a, uh, a woman who was talking about the church. She said, I like the church, David. really do like the church. The only thing that really gets me is could we have it without Jesus? And I said, no, that's kind of a deal breaker. But I I talked to her for a while and I understood what she was saying. She really did like the community. She liked the religious bit. She liked, she even liked the singing. She, She, you know, there was just, she liked the Bible in many, many ways. But Jesus, that was just too uncomfortable. She was kind of somebody who could grasp the whole concept of religion and community and and everything else but the whole idea of Jesus being real and everything being focused about him and about uh, and on him Uh, and at least she was very very honest 
in identifying that. Now, I think that when we look at this, we're saying Jesus is the kingdom, or at least he is, he is the king, because he is in uh, the midst and the kingdom is right there. So I think for the gospel writers, the identification of Jesus with the kingdom is crucial. The kingdom has come and is to come. Jesus has come and is to come again. So, okay, let's just take that as a given. Let's take it that the good news is about Jesus. Why would, why would that co- cause anyone to celebrate? You, know, you can understand lots of, just think of the different reasons. I mean, even just think yourself just now. What would cause you to celebrate right now? What would cause you as you walked out of this building and you go on to whatever they call the, the green out there and, and you just want to, you, you, well, for me, my version of celebration of dancing on the Brig of D or whatever is clenching my fists together and going, yeah, beauty, right? Now, what would want you to go out of church and go, yeah, beauty? Um, you're sitting in church and the girl you've always liked leans over and says, Let's get married. You know, ah, oh, yeah, beauty. You know, that doesn't often happen, but um, you, you, you put in your pocket and you pull out your pocket and you, what? A check for 10,000 pounds. That's incredible. And you, you would, I guarantee you, you would go your beauty or, or some equivalent things along those lines. Or maybe it's just something as simple as you fall out with someone and the two of you have really struggled and you just... Something happens here and you connect and it's all made up and, you, and, and you're just so thankful and so grateful. Or you may be just one of these very poetic people and you walk out and you see the sun shining in the trees and all this kind of stuff. And you, oh, yeah, beauty or the poetic version of that. And why would, why would anyone say about Jesus, that's just the most incredibly beautiful, just most wonderful thing. How is that good news? How is that good news greater than than any of the uh, examples that I could give? Well, we'll see. Well, let me me explain it in this way, in terms of how we respond to it. Jesus, back in Mark's gospel, he says, this kingdom is near. Now, this is how you have to respond to it. First of all, you have to repent. Now, repent is a much-used and abused and misunderstood word. Uh, I love Leonard Cohen and he's got a fantastic song. It's not called Repent. I'm just trying to remember in my head what it was called but um, the chorus line basically goes repent, repent, I wonder what they meant. And the, the song itself is brilliant because he, he, he's just saying what, what does repent? What does it mean? In biblical terms it means this. It means a change of direction, a turnaround. You're going this way, you turn 180 degrees, you go b- back. It's a turning away from wrong attitudes, from wrong words, and wrong deeds. And that's why, by the way, for those of you who are Christians and you're thinking, uh, I know the good news, I'm a Christian, I can shut off for this. But no, because as a Christian, you are continually repenting. Because you do have wrong attitudes, you have wrong words, wrong deeds. And we, we, we do repent of them. We should repent of them. Now this is the important thing. Repentance is not just sorrow for the consequences of sin. That's remorse. That's what an idiot. I cheated, I lied, um, and I've been caught. So I just feel horrible about it. That's remorse. Repentance is sorrow for the sin itself. It's a bit like all this fuss that you've got on the, you know, the BBC with various presenters and so on. Uh, with Jeremy Clarkson saying he's sorry 
for calling Gordon Brown a one-eyed Scottish idiot or whatever. Um, I don't believe him. I don't think he's sorry at all. I think he's sorry because he got caught. And he knows he's going to have to apologize. He could be in danger. He could be fined. He could lose his job. Uh, so he could say, I'm sorry. And, you know, oh, what an idiot I am. I got caught. Well, that's remorse. That's not repentance. Repentance is sorrow for the sin itself. If there were no consequences, we might do it again or not be sorrowful if, in terms of remorse. But real repentance is a change of heart. Now, it's not just guilt. You can be guilty and say you're sorry and still not repent. But it's a change of heart that does sometimes involve a great feeling of guilt. But sometimes there's not. There's conviction, there's contrition, there's confession of sin. And that's a little bit what I was trying to say to the children earlier that you're not going to be remotely interested in Jesus if you don't think you need forgiven. If you think everything's fine, why would you want Jesus? If you think everything's fine, why would you want a savior? If you think life's just okay, just a few problems to iron out, you can handle yourself or someone else will do it, then you're not going to be interested in Jesus. But if you are brokenhearted, if you know what you have done, and if you know what has been done to you, and if you are hurt, and if you are wounded, and if you are confused, and if you are desperate, then when Christ comes, you're going to know that he is the one for you. So to repent, we respond by repenting, and we respond by believing the good news. Repent and believe the good news. Now, of course, that's just simple. Believing is believing in Jesus. It's taking him at his word. It's believing that God is who Jesus says he is. It's to, be, it's to believe that what actually sounds too good to be true is actually true. And that means to follow Jesus. It is more than consent. Belief is not saying, folding your arms, sitting in the chair going, yeah, I believe that. Belief is saying, I believe so that I will act upon it. So I will do it. I like the Heidelberg Catechism, which says this. True faith is not only a sure knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also a firm confidence which the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel, that not only to others, but to me also, remission of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. It's when you believe and you trust absolutely and totally in Jesus. Now, some people say Christianity is caught rather than taught. It's not true. It is the case that real Christianity is more than a, an assent to a series of intellectual propositions. It is also the case that the mind is involved. We need to teach. It's daft to go and tell people believe in Jesus if they haven't a clue who Jesus is. And if they don't know what belief means. It's not just enough to have faith. It's who you have faith in. It's, it's true that there are many, many people who have faith in lots of things that are just false. Are just not real. That's why Paul tells the Ephesian elders, I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that's how we respond to the good news. We repent and we believe. Now, you'll notice I said how we respond. 
That's because the gospel is God's initiative. It's something that comes to us and then we respond. It's not something that we made up. It's how we reply to it. Again, it's a bit like if someone comes up to you after the service and says, would you like to come around for a meal? You've not gone up to them and said, I'm coming around for a meal. They're inviting you, you respond. And it's important in understanding the gospel that, as Donald English puts it, the basic question of our daily life is how far we are responding appropriately to God's initiatives at every level. Because we, the natural human tendency about, about God is this. We think that if we go and do certain things, God will respond to us. We pray, God responds. We read, God responds. We worship, God responds. We do something nice, God responds. God owes us. And a lot of us get ourselves in an enormous state because of that. But the gospel is, actually, this is what God has done. And we then respond to that. So this, the simple question there for, for you and for I is, have we repented and have we believed? Are we repenting? Are we believing? We need those two things, repentance and faith, whether we profess to be Christians or not. Now, that brings me on to this whole idea of how we continue to respond to the good news. Because Jesus tells people, repent and believe the good news. And then verses 16 to 20, he calls these uh, fishermen, these four men, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. I love the story in so many different ways. I love it because it shows the impact that Jesus has on people's lives. He comes and he gives a real challenge. Uh, Peter is the impetuous and impulsive one, always eager to act and talk without hesitation. James is the faithful servant who was to be martyred. Andrew, the natural evangelist who kept uh, bringing people to Jesus. John was the author of the fourth gospel. None of them were particularly influential. They weren't poor, by the way. They had a business. But brothers, says Paul to the Corinthians, think of what, may, of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. They were called not because of who they were, but because of what God was going to make them. And that's a huge difference in the gospel as well. Because you could be sitting here thinking, this is who I am. How do I make myself more acceptable to God? You don't. You just don't. God's called, if you're a Christian, God hasn't called you because you're nicer or better or more talented than anyone else. God's called you not because of what you were or even because of what you are, but he's called you because of what he's going to make you. And they had to respond in, in these ways, and, and I suggest there's a challenge to us in this as well. First of all, they left everything and followed him. Family, occupation, a profitable business partnership, they were all left to follow Jesus. You have to do the same. It's not that you suddenly throw in your university course or give up your job or walk away from your family. That's not what the Bible teaches. But it is teaching this, that when you become a Christian and you call Jesus Lord, everything is put at Christ's disposal, even if our outward circumstances do not change immediately. You do not do half-hearted Christianity. 
It's not good news if you're only prepared to invest a little in it. You leave everything and follow him. And if, 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 I, if you were to say to me, what is it to be a Christian? I would say it's the very simple act of leaving everything and following Jesus. Now, in some t- Christian traditions, they represent that by saying, let's have an altar call. Come down at the front. Let that represent you leaving everything. No. For me, the problem with that is, and it's fair enough at one level, but at another, another level, it's not radical enough. Nobody can really know if you've done that. Only you can know that. But that's what you have to do. And then there's this whole idea of fishing. You leave and you follow for a purpose. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Jeremiah 16, verses 16 to 18. Maybe actually somebody could, could somebody tell me what passage that is in the, what page that is on the Pew Bible. Jeremiah 16, verse 16. Has anyone got the, on the Pew? 775. Okay, 775. Now, look at these words. These are amazing. Now I will send for many fishermen. Jeremiah 16, 16 declares the Lord. And they will catch them. After that I will send for many hunters. And they will hunt them down on every mountain and hill and from the crevices of the rocks. My eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their sin concealed from my eyes. I will repay them double for their wickedness and their sin. Because they have defiled my land with the lifeless forms of their vile images. And have filled my inheritance with their detestable idols. The image of fishing in the Old Testament, the image of fishing as in Jeremiah here, is one of judgment. It is the idea of of God reeling them in and being judged for their sin. Jesus turns that around and in the New Testament, he talks here about fishing, but for redemption, for rescuing. And it's that whole idea of rescuing and it's that whole idea of compelling them to come in. It's that whole idea of... This is so important. He's saying to the fisherman, I know that you're fishing. I know that you've got a good business. I know that people need food. But I'm telling you right now, you need to come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they did it because they recognized to some degree who he was. They had some faith in who he was. And they they recognized the urgency in what he was saying. Now there is a curse in the Christian church. And part of it is that we're so polite But really, it's not that we're polite at all. It's just that we don't care. What we like is our religion and our comfort and our um, way of doing things. And if as long as people just leave us alone, we'll be quite happy. But you see, leave us alone to do what? Leave us alone to follow Jesus if we say we are Christians. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, "I, I don't want them left alone. Mark gave a presentation um, to church leaders in Dundee about the work of UCCF. And there's something that he said that just absolutely stuck in my head that just, I mean, I've thought about every day since. There are 18,500 students in the University of Dundee. There are 4,000 students in the University of Abertay. That's 22,500. And I know that there are people who come in here on a, we used to be a Friday night, on a Tuesday night to the Christian Union and think, aren't we doing well? There's 80 people here. There's 90 people here. There's 100 people here. 100 out of 18,500. That's 18,400 not. Now let's assume, let's be really, really generous and say that even a thousand of those, yes, really are Christians, but they've got other things to do. Fine. You've still got 17,000 people, young people, who don't know 
the good news. And probably I've never heard the good news. There are 35,000 under 14-year-olds in Dundee, only 5,000 of whom have any connection with any church. And of those 5,000, many of them probably won't hear the good news even in church. And there are tens of thousands of older people who are in this city today and in the surrounding villages and in the surrounding towns and they are rejecting a gospel that they have no concept of, no understanding of. In the film Schindler's List, when Oscar Schindler basically repents of his profiteering and realizes what the Nazis have been doing, And he makes the list to rescue Jews who are going to be on their way to Auschwitz. And he draws up this list. And he he purchases people in effect. And as he's ending the list, there's this incredible scene where he takes off his watch and says, get another one. Another four. And he's basically buying people to get add them onto this list. And the thing that sticks in my head with that is just his his whole, where he's crying out, it's not enough. It's not enough. 4,000 is not enough. It's just not enough. There's a passion and there's a concern. Take this on board. Hell is worse than Auschwitz. The lostness of people without Jesus Christ is worse than Auschwitz. It's, it's, It's horrendous. And we, what are we concerned about as Christians? What are we concerned about? I'll tell you what we're concerned about. We're concerned about ourselves. We're concerned about our own comfort. We're concerned about whether we look bad or not. And and we just don't have that passion and that fire. Now, don't misunderstand. Let me put this another way. It's a guy called Donald Miller in his book, Blue Like Jazz. Gives a great illustration of what it is to come to Jesus. He talks about how an American army seal, that's um, special soldier, whatever, special sailor apparently, um, is part of a squad rescuing a group who've been held hostage for a long time. They burst into the room where they're being held, armed to the teeth, dressed in all their gear, you know, probably having shot the bad guys, and they shout to the hostages, come on, let's go, don't worry, we're Americans. And nobody moves. They didn't believe them. They were suspicious. And then what happens is that one of the SEALs takes off his gear, his mask, and all the rest of it. Puts down his gun. Sits beside one of the hostages. Grabs his arm. Talks to him face to face. Listen, you can hear my voice. You can hear my accent. Look at me. You can see. I really am an American. This is not a trick. You're not going to be killed. I am honestly an American soldier. And gradually, after sitting, talking, and so on, one by one, people, the hostages, stand up and start following the soldiers out. Now, I think that's a great illustration of what it means to follow Christ or to encourage people to follow Christ. You are not going to get anywhere by running out there or running onto the Perth Road or going home and knocking on your neighbor's door and shouting at them, you're going to hell. You're lost without God. You need to come to church. You need to hear about Jesus. You're not going to get anywhere with that because they're hostages. And they're going to look at you and say, what are you talking about? How do we know you're any different from anybody else? Why should we listen to you? If you want people to follow Jesus, then you have to show them who Jesus is. And that's what we call incarnational ministry. You have to teach and to proclaim and to live 
the good, joyful news of Jesus Christ. In Mark's gospel, you'll find a word that's used a lot. It's used a lot in chapter 1, 2, and 3, and throughout of it, where um, the Greek word euthos, which is immediately or at once, it's translated different ways in the English. And that's where, where we finish, because Jesus wants action. The kingdom of God is near. He says, come, follow, come and follow, and I will make you. And I guess that's where I want to leave it. If you are not yet a Christian, the word of Jesus Christ to you is very simple. Come, follow, and I will make you. And if, like me, you are a Christian, the word of Jesus is very simple to us. It's come, follow, and I will make you. We're not there. We're not made, if you like. There's a whole lot more for us to discover. And I want you to think about, if you are a Christian, I do want you to think about those figures in terms of the numbers of people and not, in a sense, to go away. Remember the difference between remorse and repentance? Not just to go away feeling guilty, but just to go away just longing that God would work in people's lives and longing that you'd be able to communicate the gospel to people. It's re- of course it's hard. You're, you're trying to raise the dead. It's very difficult. It's not something you do normally. But God does it. And God does it through people. Those of you who were at the um, Christianity Explored on Wednesday, wasn't that just a lovely thing to be in the Sicilian cafe, packed to the door, at night, people walking past for people to hear the gospel and for us to have an opportunity to discuss and to share the gospel. Well, surely, I'm pleased God that this would be the case, that that would only be the beginning for so many things and in here as well. Take the opportunity while we are here to encourage people to come and hear about Jesus and take the opportunity as you get it to share and to communicate what you know about Jesus and take the opportunity while you have to come and follow him. Let's pray. Lord, bless your word to us. Thank you for it. Thank you for its simplicity. We get so confused. We get so messed up. We are so self-centered, so arrogant at many times, so unwilling to release our bitterness and fears that we, we don't hear it. We don't come. We don't follow. Lord, help each one of us to come to you. Bless you for this day. Bless you for the opportunity to hear your word. And we bless you that you are a God who never turns away anyone who comes to him. We ask that you would be with us now in your name. Amen.